listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. A major court ruling over transgender care in Texas. We're seeing a lot of anti-trans legislation around the country. From investigating gender-confirming care for transgender youth as child abuse. Right now, Florida's Board of Medicine is meeting in Orlando to talk about rules surrounding medical procedures for transgender youth in the state. That proposal would make it illegal for a doctor to give hormones to someone under 18 for gender reassignment. Two controversial bills are now law in Alabama. Yeah, Governor Ivey signing a law banning a medication for transgender youth and doctors who break it face criminal penalties. The nation's first trial over trans youth care is underway in Arkansas. Idaho. South Dakota governor. Texas. Alabama. Mississippi. And Georgia. Tennessee. Which set a record for anti-trans legislation with 147 bills. Guess people have a lot of time on their hands. Anti-trans legislation has been introduced across the nation over the past few years and has been nothing short of staggering. Dozens of states have introduced hundreds of bills attempting to criminalize healthcare in addition to sports bans, bathroom restrictions, and particularly nefarious forced outing by drafting teachers and school administrators as secret police, many states imposing fines or jail time for violations. Hi, my name is Addie Gante. I'm a final year pharmacy student at High Point University in North Carolina, and my pronouns are he, him. We've talked a lot on the show about how pharmacists can bridge the gap to gender diverse populations by providing care directly. There's so much more that we can not only do, but should do. These attempts at alienating people who are gender diverse is resulting in real harm to adults and children all over this country. As pharmacists and healthcare providers, we have a responsibility to stand against discriminatory and outright dangerous policymaking. We recently had the pleasure of talking to Delegate Danica Rome, a wonderful and outspoken advocate for LGBT rights in Virginia. And well, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Danica Rome. I'm the Virginia State Delegate from the 13th District of the Virginia House of Delegates. My pronouns are she and her. I was first elected in 2017, re-elected in 2019 and 2021, and I'm running for the 30th District of the Virginia State Senate in 2023. My district includes Western Prince William County and the city of Manassas Park, and the district I'm running for includes Western Prince William County, city of Manassas Park, and the city of Manassas. I promise I will include all of that. I will, I will <laughs> plug that for you, definitely. You'll hear from us again, too. My name is Shane Gerritsen. I'm a final year pharmacy student, and my pronouns are he, him. My name is Jordan Smith. I'm a clinical pharmacist, and my pronouns are he, him. We got to talk to Delegate Rome about her experience as a legislator fighting for LGBTQ rights and House Bill 1429, which Delegate Rome passed in 2020 to protect transgender individuals from discrimination by insurance, and how pharmacists and healthcare providers can continue to advocate for this population. And I'm also author of Burn the Page, out now through Viking Books, ebook, audiobook, and hard copy. And, and yes, I did the book. voice for the, uh, for the audiobook, and I hope you enjoy it. It is funny, so I will make you laugh. All right on. For more information or lists with all active legislation, check out the websites of the Freedom for All Americans, the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, or the Human Rights Campaign. So first, I want to talk a little bit about HB 1429. I was really excited to hear about that. So learning about like the legislature that's passing is, is sort of we're 
sort of first just exploring that and figuring that out and learning how to interpret it and everything. But hearing about that was really, really exciting to to see and see that this kind of legislation is is moving forward in opposition to the the um, the other legislation that's increasing across the country. So tell me a little bit about HB 1429. Did that face any opposition? Sure. So yes, um, my bill HB 1429, which we passed in 2020, bans discrimination against trans people in health insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, it did face opposition. Um, all but all the Republican members, except for one in the House, uh, Delegate Kerry Collier, voted against it. And all the Republican members in the Senate, except for one, who was Senator Jill Holtzman Vogel, uh, voted against it in the um, Senate. However, all of our Democrats stayed in line, um, both in the House and the Senate, who actually did vote on the legislation. And likewise, it passed it passed the House 54 to 41. It passed the Senate uh, 22 to 18. So all that said, you know, the bill we worked out in detail over a few years um, where the House Republicans, when they were in charge in 2018 and 2019, had absolutely no interest in advancing this bill whatsoever. When Delegate Deborah Rodman carried the predecessor of my bill, and what happened was in 2019, we had a roundtable discussion with members of from Planned Parenthood, uh, for example, from the provider's pr perspective, where they had of their two of their trans staff members um, actually there to speak about here are the very real difficulties that providers face in the current, you know, with what with what was at the time current policy. We also had. Uh, trans folks from uh, Virginia actually give their perspectives about what was going on, myself included. Um, but we also had, you know, other activists who are different from me who have different healthcare needs than I do, um, like Zakia McKenzie, um, who's a Black trans woman from Richmond um, who runs Nations Foundation. She was able to explain in detail, you know, some issues that were very specific for her community. Um, for example, you know, we also had the health insurance providers who were actually represented by the Virginia Association for Health Insurers had like a number of people from basically the insurance end who are actually present there, they had never, none of them whatsoever had personally experienced anything related to trans discrimination before. Like just, it has never affected their lives. They had never seen how it actually affected in health insurance. They had to hear very real first person stories from people who explaining these are the problems that come up, you know, when we're denied. It happened to me in 2014 when I was working at a job in Roslyn and I was deciding whether or not I wanted to have their health insurance and having to work through their third party intermediary between the health insurer and the company, uh, they asked me to provide like pictures of my prescriptions, doctor's notes for my psychologist, for my endocrinologist, for my voice therapy doctor, everything to, you know, affirm that, you know, like, yes, I do have gender dysphoria. Yes, I am actively transitioning. And then they Still sent me a, re a rejection letter saying that uh, that tra the transition-related care is not covered under the Virginia Group Plan. Whereas, had that been located, had the company been located one mile to the north or east in DC, they would have had to cover me. And that happened in 2014. I was wildly upset at the time, you know, to the point of tears. And I also about to get even with them. And I did, you know, it took me six years to do it, but it did. That was definitely not the way that I saw that coming, but, you know, got it done. And uh, now in Virginia, to just go over what the text of the bill actually says, you know, this is now law where it says, first off, just it defines what medically necessary transition related care is in Virginia. And this means any medical treatment prescribed by a licensed physician for treatment of gender dysphoria and includes Romanet 1, 
outpatient psychotherapy and mental health services for gender dysphoria and associated comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. Romanet two, continuous hormone replacement therapy. Romanet three, outpatient laboratory testing to monitor continuous hormone therapy. And Romanet four, gender reassignment surgeries. And when we get into the actual you know, part of the bill here, a health carrier offering a health benefit plan providing individual or group health insurance coverage shall, number one, provide coverage under the health benefit plan without discrimination on the basis of gender identity or status as a transgender individual, and two, treat covered individuals consistent with their gender identity. We also have a part here that says a health carrier offering a health benefit plan providing individual or group health insurance coverage shall not deny or limit coverage or impose additional cost sharing or other limitations or restrictions on coverage under a health benefit plan for healthcare services that are ordinarily or exclusively available to covered individuals of one sex to a transgender individual on the basis of the fact that the individual sex assigned at birth, gender identity, or gender otherwise recorded is different from the one to which such health services are ordinarily or exclusively available. Now, to break all that down in very simple lay terms, what that means is that if I as a trans woman need to have a prostate exam, I should be able to get that done without having to have an additional cost or the computer uh, system in this case saying, oh, well, we don't recognize you being eligible for this. If a trans man needs a cervical cancer screening, he should be able to go and do that. And because that is normally something that's only provided to cisgender women, the way that the computer systems and the way that people had interpreted that previously. What this basically means is that we shouldn't have to have gender segregated healthcare in terms of how the systems that rely, that you that basically um, have the codes that go into these computer programs uh, recognize it. From the back end, it doesn't make a difference what the gender of the person is who needs it because someone who doesn't need a pap smear, for example, isn't going to go and get one, right? Like there's there's no and at the same time, we also have a provision here that's consistent with you know existing state law that says nothing in the section is intended to determine or restrict a health carrier from determining whether a particular health care service is medically necessary or otherwise meets applicable applicable coverage requirements in any individual case. That's you know, consistent in American healthcare law as it is anyway. And so, yes, there's still that discretion, of course, right? You know, you know, like, is this something that you're, you know, pursuing? Do you actually need it? At the same time, if someone does need it, we very much do define in the law what medically necessary healthcare includes. And one great example of this where, you know, we've already had, we've already seen change happen because of this. There was a trans man in Roanoke who needed top surgery and he um, has his health insurance provided through Medicaid. And because of my bill that we passed, as well as the budget bill regarding um, health insurance and Medicaid, um, we were able, you know, even after he, he had to have a, you know, a little bit of a fight to get it, but he did end up actually getting his health, his health care need covered. Um, and he was able to have his, his top surgery. Um, and 
on the one hand, someone who wanted to have top surgery for, you know, breast reduction, or in that case, for, you know, double mastectomy, they can always make the case in terms of, you know, like, for example, let's say if your family has a history of breast cancer, right, that you're what you're trying to eliminate or reduce the risk for health, can, you know, for breast cancer, you should be able to, you know, have, you know, have that procedure done just based on your own genetic outcome. But you shouldn't have to rely on that as a reason for your healthcare needs to be affirmed. And for you know, trans individuals and non-binary trans masculine people, for example, who also have this, they can simply say like, look, this is part of my treatment for gender dysphoria. And they shouldn't have to have the cancer argument to back it up. And state law now says like, yeah, that's right. Explicit language protecting the rights of LGBTQ people is critical in laws and policies to protect individuals from discrimination not clearly outlined in statutes. Without it, we could get embroiled in almost a decade-long legal battle such as the case of Amy Stevens, a transgender woman who was wrongfully terminated from her job as a funeral director in 2013 after announcing that she would begin wearing traditionally women's business clothing to work. The case went through the local district court and then the Sixth Circuit Court and finally the Supreme Court, who decreed the landmark 6-3 to three vote that Stevens was protected against wrongful termination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act signed 54 years earlier. And yes, the 6-3 vote means that three people in our highest court in the country voted in favor of continued discrimination. Those are Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Brett Kavanaugh. By the time the decision was made in 2020, Stevens had unfortunately passed away. This was a breakthrough for equality for the 1.6 million Americans who identify as gender diverse. But there's still more to do. Clear and concise language is needed at the state and federal level to protect people from discrimination. So well, the other thing you should know about that bill is that we more or less in it codified existing practice as was told to us from the Virginia Association of Health Plans Executive Director Doug Gray, where he said, like, you know, these are things that are typically covered here. Um, we left out licit mention of breast augmentation mm -hmm. um, because that phrase hasn't been used in terms of um, other coverage here, but because we do say includes, includes does not mean, but limited to. Includes means like just, this is what we are specifically mentioning, that it does not mean that this is the exclusive end, end all result. We as we have the part that says gender from surgeries, plural, we left that more or less um, for the courts to determine uh, with the understanding that gender affirming surgeries Certainly, bottom surgery, either you know, phalloplasty or vaginoplasty, absolutely counts on that. Top surgery, as is demonstrated in the Roanoke case, certainly counts as that. I don't see why breast augmentation would not be covered in there. I also think, though, that like Colorado, for example, actually covers facial feminization surgery. I would actually argue that for a lot of trans women, especially, 
that the way our faces are shaped and the way that if we didn't have the ability to be on, you know, horm- uh, on testosterone blocker or your puberty blockers when we were kids, if we didn't have that ability to you know, start our transitions very early and that bone structure set into our faces early, that because that's the way that someone will immediately identify us in determining, you know, just in passing by their perception of our gender or our sex, that can immediately lead to hostility and it ends up getting us killed or getting us hurt. I would very much argue that facial feminization surgery and facial masculinization surgery are part of medically necessary health insurance or healthcare coverage. I would very much make that case. But at the same time, we are still not there in terms of being an industry standard yet. I think that more or less, you know, democratic trifecta states really need to just be the ones who are inserting that into their code over and over again so that it's um, explicit and then just kind of becomes, you know, normalized more or less. Whereas the industry has typically regarded it as a cosmetic procedure. Whereas they do not regard bottom surgery as cosmetic at this point because of the advances that we had to make for it forever. They did call it cosmetic. And it's just like, you don't go through bottom surgery because you're feeling just delightful about how you feel every day about your body. That's like, that's just, no, (laughs) no, this is a major surgery. This is not like a little thing you have to have. And here's another thing from the WPATH standards of care and that I've had to go through with this. You have to have two mental health care professionals who specialize in trans care actually sign off on this in the first place, along with your endocrinologist. I've had to have three physician's letters in order to qualify. You know what I mean? In order to just for, to get in the door for my surgeon, right? That's a big deal. <laughs> so I, I want to just to mention that in further context here that that when we are dealing with the surgical aspect of trans care, this is not something that's just done because, you know, off of a drop of the head of, oh, I feel trans today. I guess I need to get something, you know, added to or cut off. It's not how this works. And the stupidity that I have seen of opposition arguments for this in committee, I try not to be that rude and disrespectful, but I mean stupid. I saw a person say that kids are going to start cutting off their limbs because we passed this bill. Like I only have expletives to give to that person who said that. And if you had seen me off camera, uh, you would have seen, and there is a video of this that does exist of me tilting my head and mouthing, what the f-? <laughs> when they actually said that in the first place, I was like, I can't believe how stupid of a thing you just said on camera in front of other in front of legislators you know this person was a paid lobbyist who was there but we passed the bill anyway because you know bad arguments are bad so sorry for that very long introduction um but uh i hope that is at least a good starting point for our discussion about trans care and the pharmaceutical industry In, in regards to um, pharmacists in, in interaction with patients and the the ability that pharmacists now have, the, these medications, they're not experimental. They're not new. I no. mean, like these drugs have been around for decades. And in fact, Shane, I would even tell you that cisgender women are the ones who typically take, you know, estradiol in the first place, right? Sure. And 
Um, and actually, I have a friend. Her name is Lucy. Um, she is a cisgender woman. Uh, she just um, she has a, she has a young baby uh, and everything right now. Um, and Lucy used to take spironolactone for a long time. Um, and I had um, a non my you know um, I had a person uh, under my employee uh, who was non-binary who also used to take spironolactone as someone who's assigned female at birth and at the same time um, still presents feminine but uh, identifies as non-binary, you know, when they were growing up, they had to take spironolactone as well. So it's not uncommon for cis women to, you know, take spironolactone and estradiol in the first place. Um, for some men, cisgender men, they take testosterone boosters as well. And what's interesting is how testosterone is actually regulated slightly differently than estradiol. Because um, I believe what, like testosterone is considered like a, it's a classified substance, or well, I'm trying to remember controlled what the right substance. Term. That's the control yeah, as a controlled substance, right? And so I think that says something about um, uh, about men in general. <laughs> By the way, just in terms of uh, some internal rage issues. Um, but uh, that 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 aside, uh, I'll, I'll uh, you know I'll get you aside here. I do think it's very important for especially the people who would be listening to your podcast, as well as students and other people, to understand that. There is a lot of science that has gone into transition-related medical care. This is not experimental. The, you're talking about tens of thousands of people right now actively who are like living, breathing human beings who go through this medical care right, right now. As we mentioned earlier, there's approximately 1.6 million individuals in the United States that identify as gender diverse or transgender. That's 1.4 million adults and over a quarter of a million adolescents adversely affected by policies being leveraged to cause harm against them. There's a dismissive and aloof narrative urging transgender individuals to leave and seek care elsewhere outside of the states most acutely impacted by anti-trans legislation like Texas, Florida, Arizona, Iowa, Tennessee, Missouri, Oklahoma, Georgia, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Alabama. This detached sentiment is actively harmful by assigning the responsibility for safety on the victimized instead of concentrating on those actively pushing this legislation. The only way to protect people from harmful policy is by affecting legislative action. You raise an interesting discussion about the the disparity between states. Like we've got states like California and now Virginia that has protection for people who are gender diverse. And then you, when you go up the, the scale, you've got states like North Carolina, where it's like, I feel like we're kind of in between. And then you get states like Alabama and Texas, where they're passing like felony laws or trying to pass felony laws. I made the mistake of watching a Governor K. Ivey video this morning, mm. uh, governor of Alabama, and it made me so mad because um, first she talked about how like boys are boys and girls are girls. And that's just that's just a fact. And then she ended the video. Yeah. With, yeah trans girls are girls. Trans boys are boys. And those right. Are also facts. Right. Those she ended the video with we identify with something that liberals never will reality and that was it that was like uh -huh. her, oh it made me really really mad yeah but, well the, the reality that they're trying to identify with is one where yeah for cisgender people they won't go through what trans people go through okay exactly that, that's fine 
but guess what? Trans Albanians absolutely exist. Mm -hmm. I've met them when I spoke at the University of Alabama, and then I went to an LGBTQ center for young people right afterward. You can see a video of me playing acoustic guitar to the song Strange Machines by The Gathering there. <laughs> That's on Instagram. <laughs> so, like, I, I hear what they say for pure politics because in their world, they're the arbiters of, of who's right and everyone else is wrong and the bad people are wrong. Uh, you know, the you know, liberals trying to do this, blah, blah, blah. What you find is that conservative, straight parents have transgender kids. And suddenly, when they find that out, for some of them, they can, you know, kick those kids out of their homes. Because when you have 40% of homeless or, you know, of youth experiencing homelessness identifying as LGBTQ, it's not because their parents were so accepting for them in the first place. It's very often the fact that they were rejected from their homes. And to go along with that, sometimes, as we saw in Missouri, you will see parents who actually speak in subcommittee and committee being like, look, as Republican, as a Republican voter and whatever, blah, 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 I never thought this was going to affect my family. I never thought of it like this. And now that it does, I realize that I was wrong. And this is why it's important. And you're dealing with my child's health care. You're not dealing with your own. But because in their party, it's toxic for them to vote in favor of their own constituents for constituent service, because they don't see it that way, that they just were like, yeah, screw your child. And they hit the no button or screw your child and they pass a bad bill. Like, yeah, that's what they do. They And they'll say, oh, well, we're really protecting your child. It's like, no, no, you're increasing the risk of suicidal ideation among that child. That is literally what you're doing. Don't think otherwise. That is what you were doing. You are responsible and you do have blood on your hands. And I say that in the most literal sense, because in Arkansas, when they started passing their anti-trans bills, the number of cases of people experiencing self-harm and harm from other people, and these were people who were, who were being harmed one way or the other from themselves or someone else who identify as trans or non-binary, dramatically increased in terms of the intakes that you would see over at emergency rooms. So, yes policy directly affects reality and if your policies are regarded to hurt trans people guess what's going to happen trans people are going to get hurt one of the things you brought up uh you know making sure that things that can help uh, trans people uh in states that have these democratic trifectas and can actually move forward with things uh there are lots of folks, you, you mentioned them specifically, there are trans Alabamians, there are trans Arkansans. Uh, we live among you. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And and so what, what's heartening to hear about is the, the attention being paid um, because oftentimes you'll see like, oh, well, gosh, those backward states or, oh, those backward people in in, in Alabama. And as you mentioned, the governor certainly seems like one of them, but there's an awful lot of people who are suffering and have no recourse. It um, is elitist as all hell for the Democratic Party and for other advocates to just write off the South, the Midwest, the Plains, the Rocky Mountain states of the North and say, oh, it's just conservatives doing that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they should just move. Bullshit. That's no, 
you are telling people who very often do not have the luxury of being able to afford to leave in the first place that they need to go somewhere. And you're also establishing a precedent that says that violations of civil rights should just be dealt with by the victims of those infringements having to relocate. That's wrong. And that's why you have to have federal legislation. Some yeah. people will not like me bringing up the Civil Rights Act and everything. That had to be done at the federal level because Southern states specifically were discriminatory. My state being one of them. My state was our former governor, Harry Byrd, was the architect of massive resistance. He shut down schools rather than integrate them. Hence, Barbara Johns and how she got her case rolled into Board, Brown versus Board of Education. She was out of Farmville. She let her walk out of Virginia schools because her school of black children was being treated wildly differently than the school of white children of the way. The conditions of the schools were completely different. And I would very much argue that when you look at the state of how LGBTQ people are treated in America, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have more civil rights or less civil rights one place or another that you go. Civil rights are supposed to be federally protected. And for LGBTQ people, until we get the Equality Act passed, because we have too many people who are too chicken bringing up on the House on the Senate floor right now, and we even have a member of the Democratic caucus who doesn't support it in Senator Manchin, we're struggling. We're struggling in his state. You know, it's just, what, what else can I tell you? But what I can say is that we are resilient. And that even for the harm that happens and the hurt and everything else, even in West Virginia, my friend Rosemary Ketchum was elected to the Wheeling City Council as an out trans woman. You look in Kansas, Stephanie Byers is the first native trans woman to actually be elected to a state legislature. We are resilient. We will find a way. We have found a way since Stonewall and we will continue to find a way. This is the case with all lawmaking. The ones most harmed will be the ones already adversely impacted by legislation and societal framework. Sure, some people in Texas or Mississippi can just leave and seek health care in other states like Colorado or New Mexico, but there are thousands more who cannot simply relocate or travel for health care. Housing, transportation, and food insecurity inordinately affect gender diverse individuals who additionally identify as racial or ethnic minorities. As a news reporter, I covered two brutal homicides of young black trans women in Montgomery County, Maryland between 2015 and 2016. Where I think about one of them in particular, I think about uh, Zalziana, who I would sit next to her aunt later, um, and she would show me videos and photos of her you know, niece who was you know, dancing and you know just living her life. and having that taken away from her. And I remember in Kiana Blakeney's case, her dad, Kenny Linton, calling me months, six months later, crying to me on the phone, I miss my baby girl, I miss my baby girl. I think about both of them and I think about how society for them was not constructed 
to advance their lives and advance their rights. Kenny told me about his daughter that she had three strikes against her in terms of how society would see her as being black, trans, and having a temper. And she, and he's just like, you have all three of those working against you. It's just, you know, it's hard. And I, as a white trans woman, yeah, I can still very much be subject to violence, subject to threats. I know that every door I knock on could be my last. I get it. And that, you know, animosity toward white trans women is very real. It does exist. At the same time, I'm also viciously well aware that the overwhelming majority of homicides of trans women happen to black trans women, as well as Latina trans women. That is very, very common, unfortunately so. It's, and it's not to say that someone like me can't be hurt. It is to say that the people who are being hurt are disproportionately coming from black and brown communities. And that as we recognize that, that means that we have a lot of issues to deal with in terms of societal welcoming of trans people, not just tolerance, not just acceptance, but outright, we're glad you're here, embracing of people. That you, you know, it's very often deemed a radical concept when you talk about a, a deal, the concept of liberation. And when you talk about justice, and it's like, oh, well, that's the talk of, you know, like those people, you know, talking about like radical advocates and all this other stuff. Blah, blah. It's like, well, the very basic core of what we're trying to get at by having a, con a conversation about what it means to be liberated is to simply enjoy the same privileges and the same ability to exist as everyone else, as white men might take for granted. Whereas in my case, as someone who was socialized and considered male, even though I knew who I was as a trans woman from the time I was 10 years old, I have seen directly how people have changed in terms of how their talk and toner and talking over me, interrupting, you know, and treating my ideas as second, you know, second rate and everything like that. And especially in employment, where before I won my campaign, I was one for 35 in my job search. Like, I know how that hurts and how transitioning made it harder for me to find work until 12,077 people of my district voted for me. When you, when you discuss the sort of obstacles that people have to face, you do raise a really good point that it's especially difficult for people who are already marginalized. If they do, like you mentioned, they've got additional strikes against them. So that makes it even, even more harder. And that's so why- Imagine this, imagine this scenario. Imagine being a Latina, English as a second language, who is undocumented, first generation here, with no formal education, or you didn't have the ability to get a GED or high or complete high school. And those are just your identifiers as you come to the United States. How many eight balls are you already behind upon your entry here? 
none of which were your fault. But why should that person have fewer civil rights than me? Oh, because they're not Americans. They didn't come over here legally. I represent 101,000 people here in the 13th district. We have, in the city of Manassas Park, is 39.7% Latino. A number of those folks did not come here, you know, with papers. Okay, they're still my constituents. I'm still going to treat them just the same as anyone else because they live here. Because they go to Mass Park High School, Mass Park Middle School, and Mass Park Elementary School, and Cougar Elementary School. They're still my constituents, and they deserve as much dignity as everyone else. <laughs> you know, just it, bo it boggles mind for me that you have legislators who look at people who live in their districts and they want to other them. It's just like, get the hell out of here. So in a state where we do have still pretty strong opposition or people just don't want to hear it, what are some things that like people like us, like pharmacists and pharmacy students and, and other people who just want to be involved, what are some specific actions that we can take to move these kinds of legislation like HB 1429 and other legislative action forward? You need to have in-person meetings with your state legislators. Start with the Democrats. Make sure that they understand what this is because here's the thing, 100% of the state legislators in North Carolina identify as cisgender, which means that even those who are gonna be good allies, even those who are gonna be in for the fight and be supportive, chances are they don't have lived experience with what it means to be trans. Maybe some of them have trans kids or trans family members, whatever, but they might not also be directly involved in day-to-day -day trans healthcare. They need to be educated about what, what, what legislation like this does and what it doesn't do. That's wildly important. And the second thing is having those one-on-one -on -one conversations with your legislators. Remember, even if they're not part of your party, even if they're a Republican, whatever, you have to have those conversations with them because you're their boss. They need to hear from you. And you need to do it in your local counties as well, by the way, in your local, in your local governments. And as legislation like this comes up, come out and testify in subcommittee to support it. You might think, oh, this is useless. What's the point of me testifying? They're just going to kill it anyway, whatever. Get on the video for it. Create the narrative. Set the narrative. Own the narrative. Talk about this in my book, Burn the Page. The importance of owning your narrative. And when you also show up and you testify in subcommittee, Go get the news cameras involved as well. Go make a story out of it. And suddenly you're going to find that you can shift the dialogue and you can start educating the public about what it does. When there gets to be a point that the public is on board, like we had to have tectonic shifts for marriage equality, for example, for all the Republican attacks right now on LGBTQ equality, you're not seeing a lot yet. I'm sure it's going to be coming, but you're not seeing at this point outright defiance of, in the style of Kim Davis in terms of refusal to issue marriage certificates in order to spark Supreme Court challenges. You're not seeing that in mass yet. That's because in part, the Republican Party knows they've lost the issue of marriage equality. They know that. But for LGBTQ people, we have to realize that everything didn't start and end with marriage equality. That's nice. I like the fact that I'm able to maintain, to you know be married to the consenting adult of my choice. That does not mean that that directly affects 
every single other aspect of LGBTQ equality, including your ability to transition. It could affect your health insurance coverage, which could affect your ability to transition, but the larger point still stays. When you mention the um, inclusion of gender diverse equality and gender diverse equity in the the umbrella of LGBTQIA. We've heard differing perspectives of folks who sometimes think that it's, you know, it's good to be included in part of something, but it also sort of does a disservice to the very specific kind of discrimination that is faced by people who are gender diverse, because it's something that's very, very specific right now. We're having to pass this additional legislation and oppose legislation that is targeting gender diverse people so violently. So what, how, what are your thoughts on the, the folding in of, of gender diversity into LGBTQIA? Well, I mean, that's inherent, right? That's why we use the plus at the end, right? Yeah. Which is, is we know, if you just call it the rainbow community, like uh, my uh, mentor, former delegate Mark Levine does, um, then, hey, you know, that that's all inclusive, right? But yeah, I mean, like gender diversity is inherently part of the LGBTQ experience, regardless of whether you're talking about trans non-binary people, because even for cisgender people, the idea that you have a sexuality that is not heterosexual is a deviation from heteronormativity, which is the societal standard for how we judge femininity and masculinity. This is why discrimination on account of sexual orientation, gender identity is inherently discrimination on account of sex. And also why I have a tattoo, the Equal Rights Amendment on my arm. that says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Why I voted for the ERA, for Virginia to become the 38th state needed to ratify it, and why I'm still calling on the President of the United States to instruct the National Archivist to simply certify it and put it into the United States Constitution. All of that said, we have to recognize that the fight for equality, you cannot se separate the T from the LGBTQ. You can't. Our fights are inherently interlocked. And I've always said, as gay rights go, trans rights will follow. We are a lagging indicator of gay rights. At the same time, a lot of trans people also identify as something other than straight. You know, And so I think it's really important that we recognize the inherentness of gender diversity that exists just from simple declaration of LGBTQ status. You're deviating from the norm, the societal norm of masculinity and femininity. Therefore, that's gender diversity, even among cisgender people. This may seem outside the scope of a pharmacist or healthcare provider. But when gender-affirming care is being denied to people through discriminatory laws and providers have an obligation to resist said laws, the second and seventh stanza of the Oath of a Pharmacist are highly applicable in this situation. I'll promote the inclusion, embrace diversity, and advocate for justice to advance healthcare equity. And I'll embrace and advocate changes that improve patient care. Equitable care, even equal care, is being denied in our own country, in our own cities. As providers of care and servants to the public, we must commit to opposing these attacks and policies that violate human rights. And it's also a part of giving holistic health care to patients. 
God, you, said, you brought up so many just like uh, excellent points. Uh, you know, like what are we doing? These are just these are people. Just like we are. Uh, th- what what is the othering um, other than you know doing it so that we can be mad at someone when really what we should be mad at is the fact that society is structured in a way to make it crummy for us. But oh, it's it's that evil trans uh, black woman's fault, and we need to make sure that she's vilified. Um, and it's it's refreshing to hear you know these types of this type of talk from from folks that are in office and running for a uh, bigger office it's refreshing to hear um yeah good luck we, we wish you honestly sincerely the best of luck with that uh but um it, you know refreshing to hear these things out in the open um and to get this type of talk because it's I feel like so often, maybe it's the way that the, the algorithms work, but I, fe- I hear so often all these negative things, the things that get us upset, the things that dishearten. And to hear you talk and to, to hear um, your experiences and the experiences of your constituents, the experiences of people you know, and know that the good fight is being fought and that there are ways to help is really, I think, powerful and, and I think incredibly important because there's an awful lot of people that uh, stand to suffer if, you know, if we don't fight that good fight. And and I just say, you know, from your neighbor to the south here, um, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing and, and I'm I'm so grateful to have, you know, people like you representing and hopefully, hopefully, you know, more so we'll have some of that in North Carolina as well. Well, you know, one, Dr. Thank you. Second, I talk to people about the idea of being vulnerable enough to be visible. And for trans people and for LGBTQ people in general, that just means, you know, being out and being willing to share your story. But even if for your case, as an advocate, your visibility matters. For trans people, our rights don't advance if cisgender people don't let them. We have to have allies who understand that just because this doesn't affect your life condition directly doesn't mean that your society isn't better when we advance our, you know, civil rights. And so, you know, um, I think maybe just the thing I would close on with this is to encourage your listeners, to encourage students, to encourage you know, just the people who are in this for the right reason to take care of people. So make sure that taking care of people is a verb and that you are, it's constantly in action. It's not a passive thing or it's not just a couple tweets here and there, happy pride month with an emoji next to it. It's showing up, it's checking in, it's testifying. And yeah, you got to march here and there too, you know, yeah. You know, good peaceful protest never hurt anyone. At the same time, you know, when it comes time to uh, when it comes time to fight in the state legislatures, comes time to fight in your local government, show up. And the last thing I'm going to make here, I don't mean this to be partisan, even though I my job is to train Democratic women to run for office. It's very simple. When you see discriminatory politicians single out and stigmatizing the very people they're elected to serve, you need to run to unseat them or go find someone who will and then work for them. It's that simple. I was asked the other day um, from a doctoral student, you know, who was who asked, uh, what is the thing that the transgender community needs the most? Like, oh, for our politicians to stop attacking us. I can start dealing with so many different societal issues that negatively affect the trans community if we don't have hostile politicians and we have 
active, inclusive politicians who are actually willing to listen, learn, and serve. We have that, I can fix a lot of problems. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Delegate Danica Rome for joining us for this conversation. Also thanks to Jordan Smith and Shane Gerritsen, music by Dave Jules, and additional sounds and music from Fezlian Studios and Pixabay.